Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this special episode, is California's Proposition 22 vote a disaster for unions? How did it happen? What can be done? And could it happen here as well? Hello and welcome to this special episode of Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast and a member of the Labour Radio Podcast Network. I'm Simon Sapper and I want to share with you a seismic development from the US. And no, it's not the Biden-Harris victory. It's all about a thing called Proposition 22. Our counterparts in the US fear this could leave millions of American workers with no health care, employment protection or union rights. Bad enough in and of itself, but could it happen here? What's happened? How did it happen? What does it mean? In November, US voters, in unprecedented numbers, turfed Donald Trump out of the White House, and they secured important progressive changes to state laws in Alaska, Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, Ohio, Oregon, and South Dakota. And while President-elect Joe Biden was meeting business leaders and telling them he wants them to know he's a union man, the Labour movement was dealt a heavy blow indeed in California. Proposition 22 was on the ballot paper, and it got passed by around 7 million votes to 5 million. This result has been described as, quote, the most radical undoing of Labour legislation since Taft-Hartley in 1947. That's the law that pretty much neutered much of what FDR put in place during the Great Depression. That was Ed Ferencz of the America Workforce podcast. Why such despair? What does Proposition 22 say and mean? And if it's as bad as all that, what then for the labour movement in California and further afield? Before we dive deeper into this, you need to know that AB5 is California's Assembly Bill Number 5, which set out a mandatory flaw in worker terms and conditions from the 1st of January 2020. And OSHA is the US Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, a bit like RHSE over here. So let's wind the clock back a little. Here's Professor Vina Dubal of the University of California Hastings talking on the Working People podcast back in October. So Proposition 22 is a $184 million ballot proposition in California. It is the most expensive ballot proposition we have seen in U.S. history. And it is basically these companies, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, and Postmate, trying to write laws to fit their business model with regard to their workers. I think that it is the most dangerous uh, labor law that I have seen in my lifetime. And what it does is it takes the status of these workers, they are employees under California law, um, takes their status as employees away and makes it so that they are permanently not 
employees. They're permanently a third category of worker that doesn't have the same sort of real independence that a business person would have, that an independent contractor would have in setting their own fares and and, uh, not being told how to behave on the job and deciding when and where to, to go to develop a clientele. They wouldn't have any of those freedoms and they simultaneously would not have any of the um, the freedoms that employees have, including the the right to a minimum wage, to overtime compensation, to um, unionize, the right to to get workers' compensation if you're injured in what is you know according to OSHA one of the most dangerous jobs in the country, to or the right to unemployment insurance if you've laid, been laid off through un, no fault of your own. They don't have any of these employment protections if this proposition passes. And what's sort of really scary to me is that um, it would be a permanent situation. So the proposition has has been written in such a way that if there were any sort of laws that were written in relationship to work and, and this economy, that the California legislature would have to pass those laws by a seven-eighths majority, which essentially locks us in work-wise to, to the company's rules. In fact, with regard to wages, for me, this is probably one of the, the most, if not, if not the most troubling parts of the proposition. Workers would only be pay, uh, paid for the time that they spend after they've been assigned a fare. And for most workers, the time they spend without a fare in their car without having been assigned a fare is a significant amount of time. So in the pandemic, that would mean that they are not being paid for something like 60 to 80% of the time they spend laboring. So what this takes us to is a legalized world of piecework in the service economy. And the proposition has been written in such a way as to leave open the possibility that other companies, particularly in the delivery sector, could be could, you know, pop up and be delivery network companies and have these same very, very uh, loose rules to abide by when they with regard to their workers. And so it, it, it essentially creates a third category, substandard category of, of worker in California. This is for a majority immigrant and people of color workforce. And the reality is, and they know this, the companies know this, this is why they've spent so much money on this initiative. The reality is, is that if this passes in California, it will pass in states across the country and maybe even extend um, beyond the U.S., beyond our borders and dismantle labor protections elsewhere. The importance of this battle to business was underscored by some desperate acts. But many argue that this should have come as no surprise. Here's one of the world's leading experts on the gig economy, Professor Bama Athreya, head of gender and inclusion at the Lauders Foundation and visiting scholar at the University of Michigan, chatting with Ray Funtes of the Partnership on Working Families on her outstanding podcast series called The Gig. I've got to say, like, the stories are get more and more crazy about the tactics that uh, the, the gig companies are using to fight back. Yeah. So I did want to ask you a little bit about that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm just confused about whether they're even allowed to do some of the stuff that they're doing. Part of it really stems from their tactic, um, an explicit tactic, which is to reframe the ballot initiative as something supported by progressive allies. And I think this is something that's come under uh, an immense amount of scrutiny because of the ways in which they have funneled, you know, contributions to certain nonprofits to engage um, in the political battle with them to try and um, misdirect voter attention and suggest that the ballot initiative is 
a progressive opportunity to expand rights for workers when in fact it does quite the opposite. Okay, so what they're doing is clearly illegal. Let's describe that. I mean, what I've seen is like DoorDash people having to deliver stuff in bags that say, yes, on Prop 22, that take a political position. Um, is there any real meaningful difference between that and having to deliver something with a Trump-Pence flyer on it? Well, no court has been able to weigh in on the legality of those issues. I only speak to the fact that, you know, the labor code is very clear that an employer should not be should not have a policy requiring employees to engage in political activity. And so that's what would have to happen is is really unearthing what the companies have required these employees to do to engage in that activity. And I think it's also clear that the company has sent messages, um, you know, Uber, for example, you know, requires drivers who are still working to really move through a lot of in-app messages that are essentially propaganda around Proposition 22, while also saying if Proposition 22 passes, they'll have to terminate all of their workers. We don't have any credible reports of, of workers being intimidated, harassed, or otherwise retaliated against. But the message from the companies could not be clearer that they are attempting to essentially force or cajole their workers into engaging in political activity or threatening to shut down. I'd also mention, you know, another thing that uh, another component that's come up very recently is the fact that the, the companies um, that have been mailing out uh, you know, information about this proposition have been abusing nonprofit status filing, for example, to avoid paying full postage fees. You know, it just it goes to show you that the companies will try any tactic to to lower the threshold for what they would have to pay otherwise to engage in this political activity. Workweek Radio in San Francisco reported on protests by Uber and Lyft drivers against tactics being used, even demonstrating outside the mansion of the Uber CEO. Here's Steve Zeltzer, host of Workweek, from that demonstration. He is not going to get away with defrauding the people of California. AB5 became law in California on January 1st. AB5 required that a company such as uh, Uber and Lyft and many others pay workers' compensation. Now, the fact of the matter is they're spending $200 million on a ballot initiative to overturn AB5, and they may or may not be successful. Hopefully they won't. We're against uh, AB uh, 20, Prop 22. But the fact of the matter is it's illegal for them not to pay workers' compensation to Uber and Lyft drivers. And what we are saying here today is, is that uh, Chesson Boudin, the district attorney in San Francisco, and Xavier Becerra, the Attorney General of California, have a responsibility, a legal responsibility, to to prosecute uh, these executives who refuse to pay workers' comp. Why is that? Well, the reason you have workers' comp is if workers are injured on the job and they're hurt on the job, they should be getting health care. They should be getting compensation. If they're not getting compensation of health care, what that means is they end up at public hospitals, they end up uh, the public paying for it. And in California, over $7 billion a year, $7 billion a year are being lost because this guy, Dara, and the rest of these executives and billionaires refuse to pay workers' compensation. So it's defrauding the public, it's defrauding the working people of California, and it is against the law. Well, as you can imagine, warning bells were ringing loudly now, and not just in California. Here's Ed Ferenc, host of the American Workforce podcast again, making it clear exactly what was at stake. Bottom line is this. Proposition 22 reverses, reverses the momentum that activists had 
a year ago when they passed California's AB5, which recognized gig workers as full employees. And as a result, they got labor rights like unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, overtime, and a path to unionizing. Well, guess what? Proposition 22 exempts the gig companies from AB5 and instead creates a so-called third category of independent contractors with a couple of perks. Trying to change this for the workers is not going to be easy. The law requires, check this, seven-eighths, seven-eighths of California's legislature to make any changes, including any measure that would let workers collectively bargain. Wow. But to no avail. Prop 22 passed. And as Chris Garlock of Union City Radio summed it up. Proposition 22 in California is part of the extended war between labor organizations and employers in the gig economy, reports Labor Notes. Last year, California passed Assembly Bill 5, a law that heavily restricted which workers could be considered independent contractors ineligible for minimum wage laws and the right to form unions. Uber and Lyft failed to overturn it through the courts, but they opened up a new front by getting this initiative on the ballot. It creates a massive carve-out where AB5 no longer applies to their drivers. These companies, along with co-conspirators like Instacart, spent upward of $200 million to pass the initiative, making it the most expensive ballot initiative in California history. And on KBOO's Labour radio show, hosts Michael Cathcart and Elliot Gilligland were clear on what happened and what may come next. It, it kind of broke down on, on the way you'd expect. The people that supported the Yes campaign were largely big tech companies. Specifically, uh, the companies were uh, Uber, Lyft, uh, the ones you'd expect, as well as uh, DoorDash, Postmates, and I believe there's one other one that I'm forgetting. But yeah. Either way, yeah, it's, it's the, the gig economy companies and the yeah. ones that you'd expect. And I think, too, you know, a lot of this stuff, one, we'll get into it, was kind of shrouded behind how much money each side could spend. Yeah. But I think in addition to the money, there's also some aspects in play here of just kind of general confusion around the terms. Correct. And I think a lot of the times when someone thinks of a contractor... They think of someone as successful, having multiple clients, all of this thing. But I think it's in a lot of cases for a gig worker, that kind of description doesn't always necessarily fit. Perhaps the Washington Post was listening to that KBOO show. For the very next day, they printed a report by Fez Siddiqui and Natasha Tiku on voter disenchantment with Uber and Lyft's activities, which seemed to bear this out. Uber, Lyft and so on were arguing in bad faith. That's the key message of many quoted in the Washington Post article and an excellent piece in The Nation by Wilfred Chan suggests that they were and are. For example, argues Chan, whilst the companies argued that Prop 22 would be good for delivery drivers, the Barclay Labour Centre estimated that it would also push the hourly pay rate down to as low as $5.64. Crazily low. Can or will this voter disenchantment turn to anger or action? I spoke to Steve Zeltzer from Workweek San Francisco and asked him if, with hindsight, there was anything that could have been done differently in the run-up to the ballot. Well, of course, as a result of them spending over $200 million there, they propagandized uh, the working class that uh, this was going to benefit workers. They had black workers, Latino workers, and others. 
saying it was going to help them. I think the uh, political problem in the counter campaign, not only that they did not have enough money, seven, only seven, very small amount, seven million uh, to oppose it, but also they didn't go to the heart of the matter, which was basically this initiative was cost shifting the cost, the public costs of workers to the to uh, from the from the company to the public. The seven billion dollars, which the state has lost as a result of the fact they're not paying Social Security, workers' comp disability, uh, is end up paying by the taxpayer. The taxpayer ends up carrying the load. And also, I think the uh, deregulation and the illegality of what they're doing. They didn't really go to the fact that this is part of union busting and part of deregulation of, of the workforce. One of the, the other issue is, uh, the general issue is, is that the reason workers are forced into uh, being gig workers and working for Uber and Lyft is that they can't survive on their wages. So yeah. millions of yeah. workers can no longer survive and they're forced into this part-time gig economy. And th- that needed to be addressed uh, as a general social issue. Why do workers have to get these second and third jobs to survive? And that has to do with the capital system, what capitalism is doing to, to the working class, marginalizing them and basically lowering wages so that workers are in a very uh, very weak situation as far as their, their labor. They're violating the, the basic labor laws. So even if you have a, a wage, say, in San Francisco of $15 an hour, the reality is it, it's not enforced on Uber and Lyft. And the other uh, issue that uh, I felt was uh, a problematic is when AB5 passed, it went into effect on January 1st. It required these companies to pay workers' compensation. And that's a, a criminal law uh, that mm. you have to pay workers' compensation. And, and, and an employer that doesn't pay workers' compensation can be criminally prosecuted. And the district attorney of San Francisco, the attorney general of California, refused to criminally prosecute uh, uh, was these it, executives. Was any explanation offered as to why they, they chose not to act? That's a good question. We tried to, to even some San Francisco supervisors raised that and said that uh, they should be required to. They wouldn't do it. Maybe that was a political thing. I mean, if they'd arrested the, the CEO of Uber, that would have created a, a firestorm. But, you know, actually, that could have been used to explain to people why are they getting away with violating the laws when workers who are accused of workers' comp fraud are arrested for violating the law. Uh, you know, again, it would play on the reality of the real political situation. What's going to happen next? What can be done to retrieve the situation? How will workers in this position be able to organize and mobilize to to try and resist what seems to be a a considerable attack coming down the line? Well, there has to be an education campaign, uh, a general education campaign. And one of the problems is the unions and labor don't have their own labor channel. There's no national labor channel. There's no real ongoing education platform for workers. And we really need that. There is social media, which is important, and there are workers who are using it. So that's one of the things. The other thing is workers still have the power, and these companies are getting away with uh, violating the law. I mean, one of the things about the Democrats uh, in California, uh, California is is run by the Democrats. They have a supermajority in the legislature, and they deregulated Uber and Lyft in these companies. Uh, They took away local control of Uber and Lyft from the... uh, MTA Metropolitan Transit Authority in San Francisco and gave it to the state PUC, the Public Utility Commission. And they do what they don't really enforce the law. So even the, the laws that we have for, for example, the number of cars on the road for the environmental reasons, you know, is not enforced. So these companies are able to 
basically ignore the law and not be held accountable for that. So there has to be a political campaign yeah. that the laws have to be enforced against these companies, and they're not above the law. If we if we roll forward, say a couple of years, and everything goes goes well, we are, there is a, a mobilization of opinion, a political and industrial mobilization. How would you how would you see things being capable of changing over that period of time? Well, I, I think that right now there's a pandemic. Workers are afraid to go out. Workers, if they can work at home, are doing that. And the frontline workers, large number of Black Latino workers, are forced to go out and deal with the public uh, healthcare workers. So we're we're having in San Francisco a, a, a depression. Really, fifty percent of the businesses may go bankrupt in San Francisco. Small businesses, uh, the streets are empty. It's it's a, uh, a it requires radical changes in our in our system which are not right now apparent. And even Biden is not proposing, for example, national health care. This is a major issue for, for these workers, uh, the gig workers and health care, for example. They, they don't get health care and they don't have the money to get health care. So now I think a campaign for uh, national health care and, and health care for all is critical for survival, especially in a pandemic. And you need to have hiring of uh, in, uh, health and safety inspectors so that these laws that they have are enforced for example, as far as even protection of workers on the job, uh, there are less than 200 OSHA inspectors, health inspectors, for 18 million workers in California. It seems to me that three main questions come from this. First, what can the union movement in the states do to counter this? Second, what can be done to retrieve the situation? And third, to what extent is worker classification, that thing that says only employees can form unions, To what extent is that really at the heart of this? You can see why Prop 22 is viewed so seriously in the US. Arguably, the labour movement seems to have been outmaneuvered, outspent and outfought. US legislation says only employees can form unions, so designating potentially millions of workers as something else is a real challenge in terms of union organising. But it is a challenge that surely must be met. Prop 22 shows how seductive the language of choice flexibility, independence can be. The gig economy is not going to collapse anytime soon and unorganised workers will always have the potential to undercut union negotiated rates. Okay, 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 I hear you say. That's a steep hill to climb. But on this side of the Atlantic, we're in a different place. Thank goodness. Well, yeah, to a, a certain extent we are, but complacency is both unwarranted and I'd suggest unsafe. The big difference is in the categorization of workers. In the UK, we've had a three-way split for some time between employees, self-employed and workers. Employers using web-based platforms to provide their services would typically look to self-employed labor. But as these web-based platforms and the algorithms that accompany them become more sophisticated, more popular and more profitable, using the self-employed became integral to a business model that depended on minimal costs. And as labor is traditionally the largest item on any corporate balance sheet, Minimal costs means in practice paying low wages and stripping out the overheads associated with employment, such as paid holidays, sick pay, providing tools and equipment, employers' national insurance, and so on. In the UK, three things can be said to have happened as a result. First, we've become addicted to cheap convenience. The whole home delivery boom, which is now seeing firms like Deliveroo and Just Eat competing over the delivery of exceptionally low-value food items, shows how far down this track we have drifted. It's arguably a dangerous habit. I would suggest it just puts petrol on the fire of low-pay gig working. 
Second, there's a growing appetite for unionisation amongst the workers dependent on these platforms. UK union recognition is not as binary as that in the US, but you do still have to establish a bargaining unit and employers can spin the formal process out for some time, so new organising models have developed and have gained traction. The only employees can join a union restriction in US law is also incompatible with UK legislation. And third, a variety of employers have stress-tested notions of self-employment to destruction, and groups of workers backed by their unions have brought a succession of court cases and established vital precedents, securing key employment rights by arguing that these people are not self-employed but fall into the worker category. But here's the key point. Union organisation and court cases cannot keep pace with the demands of industry. And a decline in so-called zero-hours contracts seems to have been reversed by the effects of COVID. And what Proposition 22 tells us is that employers like Uber are at best opportunistic. The so-called small print of Prop 22 is the most scary of all. That bit that says you need a seven-eighths majority to overturn it. Anyone capable of imagining, drafting and then selling that device is someone to worry about. So despite the apparent finality of the Prop 22 vote, as Steve Zeltzer told us, this story is far from over, either in the US or anywhere else. Now, all the voices you've heard on this podcast, including the one that's speaking now, are drawn from shows that are part of the Labour Radio podcast network. You can access everything and more through the portal at labourradionetwork.org. There's a companion blog on the makesyouthink.com website, and you can join the discussion on this or any of the issues we cover on Union Jews by email. The address is unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at JewsUnion. Please subscribe and do rate us on the podcast platform of your choice. The third series of Union Jews will premiere in January. We already have some great guests confirmed, so watch out for more details of our schedule and be sure to let us know what you want to see us cover. Until next time, my thanks to my fellow podcasters for generously allowing me to sample parts of their shows. Don't forget, you can access them all at labourradionetwork.org. Thank you for allowing us to keep you company. I hope you and yours stay safe and well and have a relaxing, fulfilling festive season. And I look forward to connecting again in the new year. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.